This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, it's called the International Donor Coordination Center, the nerve center in Germany for shipping military aid to Ukraine. I'll talk to a reporter who's been there. Then, a former Air Force general says Russia's war is a wake-up call to rebuild the American military. And some people are calling for drones to resupply Ukrainian forces and deliver humanitarian aid. But is delivery by drone ready to scale in war zones? Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The International Donor Coordination Center is located in Stuttgart, Germany, headquarters of European Command. The purpose is to field Ukraine's requests for weapons and get them from where they are to where they need to be. Jack Detch is Foreign Policy's Pentagon and National Security Reporter. Jack, welcome to the program. Mimi, thanks for having me. So start by describing the Coordination Center and the people that are there. So Mimi, this, this is a lot like a, a high school basketball gymnasium that's been converted into a classroom, only instead of students, you have troops from over 30 different countries basically sitting there clicking away at, at their computers, kind of a startup-like environment, and basically they're planning and plotting almost every Western dollar that's that's going into Ukraine. This is a very interesting process by which if a donor from any country in, in the West wants to go out and deliver aid to Ukraine, this group will sort of find out how to get it there through the logistical ways, if it's a bigger piece of equipment, uh, like an Su-25 Frogfoot Soviet aircraft, they can help disassemble it downrange and then help the Ukrainians get it into the country. So this is very much a, a major coordination cell uh, for a lot of the things that we're seeing going in. And the thing that's interesting is that it's real time. There are Ukrainians there in the facility basically talking to some of the folks on the front lines in the Donbass and then relaying those messages to the American and British officials inside the room to make sure they can get every dollar and every bullet as quickly as possible. And and how is that process working? I mean, has it been streamlined? Is it is it to the point that, you know, a Ukrainian commander can essentially call in or make a request for specific weapons and then it actually gets to where it actually needs to be? It's been much more streamlined over the past couple of months. Originally, these were two separate cells, the Americans and the Brits working separately, uh, but side by side in Stuttgart. And once they kind of found out that they were sort of duplicating their efforts, they began to join forces and do this multinational effort. So now at, at the secret level, um, they're able to coordinate in, in this high school level gymnasium. And certainly for the Ukrainians who are, are in a major gunfight in the Donbass, as American officials have explained, they're able to relay much more quickly their requests um, for ammunition, uh, for any sort, sort of thing that they might need, tanks and, and fighter aircraft. It's not clear that everything they're they're going to ask for they're going to get. We still see some some restrictions on on Western aid. Of course, the, the fighter jets the Ukrainians have wanted, both MiGs and and upgraded American aircraft are not going forward. But certainly, this is a mechanism that helps things move much much more quickly. And it's backlogged with a, a software system that allows the Ukrainians to drop in their requests and for other countries to immediately pick those up and figure out the logistics there in Stuttgart. 
So there's essentially an, an app for that, right? I mean, is it is it actually, you know, they that 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 it's streamlined to the point that they can actually make requests that way? That's right. There's an there is an app for that. It has a Ukrainian name that that I can't pronounce, unfortunately. Um, but it was set up by the the British military, the the 104th Cedar Theater Sustainment Brigade that is all over that that room that they have sort of a, a wolf-like flag they, they've adorned in the room. And yeah, basically it's sort of a, a drag and drop system where the Ukrainians, uh, I'm told, can, can click in, uh, can say what they want if they need ammunition, if they need more weapons, if they need more small arms. Uh, countries that are interested in sourcing that in Eastern Europe and Western Europe then can look at those requests. Uh, if they have extra weapons, they, they can bring them in. So uh, in, in one instance, uh, one Western European country had rifles that the Ukrainians wanted. They just didn't have the, the sights and ammunition for them. So because of that system, they were able to coordinate with other Western European and Eastern European countries to get those weapons out of storage facilities, uh, put sights on them, put ammunition in them, and, and send them to the front lines. So this really helps speed up the process. Do you have an idea, Jack, of how long it takes from request to actual delivery? No, it's it's a good question. Of course, things can still get in within 48 hours of, of being approved, but this is sort of the, the backlog process. So uh, you're looking at probably a few days at least, uh, depending on the complexity of the system. If you're talking about bigger systems uh, like tanks, like uh, M-17 Soviet-era helicopters, those need to be disassembled at the Ukrainian border and, and trucked in by the Ukrainians, basically handed off between the West and the Ukrainians. So very much depends on the complexity of the system, how readily available it is, uh, and how quickly the Ukrainians are able to come pick it up. Is there a plan for sustaining and maintaining the weapons? Do they have spare parts sent to them along with the, the weapons, or what's the plan for that? So as, as part of this request process, the, the Ukrainian liaisons that are attached uh, to this unit in Stuttgart, Germany, are, are making requests for sustainment. Uh, and in addition, they can request through this, this app, this Craigslist-like app, uh, more sustainment for these types of weapons. And it's also being baked into these training programs that, that we've seen for the M777 howitzers in Eastern Europe uh, and other uh, capabilities that are, that are with the Ukrainians. But uh, of course, the, the key caveat here is when talking to these officials, they admit uh, that once things go over the border, they're, they're somewhat blind. So you can do a lot of the sustainment work on one side of it, but if these weapons are going into the Donbass in the active fight, very difficult to track and there are no tracking devices on these types of equipment that are that are going right into the field. You know, I wanted to ask you about tracking because I wonder if it's possible that, you know, these very sophisticated weapons could end up in the wrong hands. That's, that's certainly been a fear, both on, on the American side and, and elsewhere, but just the gravity of the fight that the Ukrainians are, are facing in the Donbass right now. We've seen the Russians make significant gains in Luhansk province, basically trying to take over the, the major urban center there, Severodonetsk, and making significant progress. So the message from the Ukrainians has always been weapons, 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 ammo, 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 now, 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 and it's very difficult for the West to reject now when you see the situation getting more dire and the capability level is actually going up, of course, as we see the Pentagon now providing HIMARS uh, multiple launch rocket systems for the first time. So it seems like the debate is only going to push Kiev to get more expensive 
uh, more outfitted kit, especially as the West looks to get them sort of to that NATO level of capability. All right, Jack. Thanks very much for being on the program. Thank you so much. Coming up on Government Matters, is the American military's capabilities too small and too old for current threats? We'll be right back. President Putin's initial failures in his war in, in Ukraine wasn't just a failure of strategy, but an overestimation of his military's capability, training, and prowess. My guess says that the U.S. political and military leaders may be making a similar mistake given current threats. David Deptula is a retired Air Force Lieutenant General and is the Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. General, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks. It's great to be on, Mimi. You say this, <clears throat> quote, the choices Putin made with respect to his military's force structure left him with the wrong force design and poor readiness for the war he chose to fight. Can you explain that? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Yes, the fact of the matter is that uh, we were all surprised at Putin's poor uh, military performance. Uh, and part of that reason is because of his force design and uh, lack of training, uh, obviously generalship of the leaders uh, that he has in place is also a factor. But all of this points to the fact that <clears throat> similarly, the choices that we've made in recent years and the ones that are being made today are really inadequate to meet the challenges posed by our competitors. And what I mean by that is that we may not be able to build up the needed military power once an ad adversary or an enemy triggers a tripwire. Um, I think I'll recognize that today's world moves way too fast for that. If you take a look at stealth fighters, stealth bombers, and attack submarines as examples, they can't be built overnight. So unless we make the right choices today, there won't be time to recover when an adversary requires us to fight. And my concern is that President Biden's 2023 defense budget plan, rather than reversing America's 30-year decline in defense capability, actually accelerates that decline. Well, General, let's talk about that, because the DOD does say that China is the pacing threat, Russia is the acute threat. There is a pivot to great power competition, uh, combat. All the services are modernizing. So what's missing, specifically, in your view? Well. Capacity. Uh, capacity is huge. You know, American leaders are fond of saying that ours is the best military in the world. But what they fail to realize, or at least acknowledge, is that key elements of our forces have shrunk by over half since our last clear-cut victory in a major regional conflict, which was 1991's Operation Desert Storm. Um, so, you know, I think that the folks realize or fail to realize that <clears throat> today the Air Force is currently the oldest, the smallest, and the least ready in its entire history. And, and so here's what the defense budget does. The current proposed defense budget calls for the Air Force to retire about 1,500 aircraft over the next five years while only buying 500 replacements. That makes the Air Force uh, smaller by another 25%. And it's not just the Air Force. The Navy's set to sh uh, shed 24 ships over the same period. Well, well, General, let's talk about the Air Force since you bring that up. 
What aircraft does the Air Force need? How many? What will it cost over the president's budget plan? Well, the fact of the matter is the only fifth generation stealth aircraft in production today um, is the F-35. Uh, currently, in the proposed budget, uh, there are only 33 being purchased. Just to maintain the average age of the Air Force, we'd have to buy 72 aircraft a year. So we're not even buying what it would maintain, require to maintain the aircraft that we have. So, you know, specific numbers are in terms of dollars, I'll leave that to the budgeteers. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, it's not a matter that we can't afford these aircraft. The Congress of the United States makes a determination of the amount of funding that's required to meet the needs of our national security strategy. And right now, the uh, president has not proposed what's adequate and the Congress has not provided the funding to do so. So, so, so we let's say, well, let's say though, General, that Congress does approve it. How long do you think it would take for the American military to be in a position to take on China and Russia simultaneously and win? Ha, uh, it's an interesting question, Mimi, but what it requires um, is immediate investment to reverse this decline in our military capacity. Um, we, it's a subjective analysis, uh, but the goal ought to be that we can get healthy by the end of the decade. Um, and we could do that um, if, in fact, that we applied the resources and started buying the equipment. I mean, my gosh, just to put for your audience these, these issues in context, the youngest B-52 bomber is over 60 years old. We're flying fighters that are 40 years old. I mean, this is ridiculous, and it's really negligence, uh, and we need to be able to increase our force structure to be able to fight just one of these major regional conflicts, much less two. And, uh, General, you know, finally, the, the Russian Foreign Ministry put out a list of Americans who are permanently banned from entering Russia. You're on that list. So my question is, how did you get on Putin's you-know-what list? Well, um, you'd have to ask Mr. Putin or the Russian Foreign Ministry themselves. But what I would tell you is if there's ever an example since World War II of a nation fighting against all odds for the freedoms that our nation regards as unalienable, it's the people of Ukraine. Um, so we need to act now to support them to the greatest degree possible. And I'm very proud uh, to be considered by the Russian Foreign Ministry as someone who's been effective uh, in coming to the assistance of the Ukrainian people, or at least advocating for that assistance. All right, General, we appreciate you being on the program. Thank you very much. You bet. Coming next on Government Matters, is delivery of aid and cargo by drone ready for the war zone? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Before the fall of the Ukrainian city of Mariupol, there were multiple calls to airdrop humanitarian aid and other cargo by drone. But is the technology and infrastructure ready to scale in war zones? Lieutenant Colonel Mark Jacobson is the professor of strategy and security studies at the School of Advanced Air and Space Studies. Mark, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Mimi. So you came to this topic during the conflict in Syria. Can you tell me what you were doing then and what was the situation you were dealing with? Yeah, so I'm a C-17 pilot by background, so my job was delivering cargo in war zones. 
I was also an Arabic speaking Middle East specialist taking a couple years away from flying to do research on the Syrian civil war. And I was in Turkey working with Syrian refugees. And at the time the Syrian government had started a uh, surrender or starve campaign in which the Syrian government was starving out entire regions of urban areas to break the will of the people. And people would ask me as a cargo pilot, why doesn't the United States come in and airdrop humanitarian aid? And the short answer is that most of our air delivery capability depends on large airplanes that would get shot down in a war zone unless you go in with a major military operation to destroy air defenses. This was the 2014-15 timeframe. And it got me thinking, surely in the 21st century, there must be some way you could get aid through this contested airspace to people who need it. The United States can drop weapons anywhere in the world we want. Why can't we drop cargo? And that landed me on the idea of maybe you could use a bridge of small drones. So where is the technology now? And, and does the Pentagon have the ability to deliver at least humanitarian aid by drone in a war zone? Very limited capability. Uh, there has been a lot of experimentation. People who follow DOD innovation know that we do a ton of experimentation, a ton of R&D. There has been a lot of small-scale efforts. Um, the Marine Corps has experimented with delivering blood and medical supplies by drone. Uh, we do have some larger systems that are optionally manned uh, or unmanned that could potentially deliver cargo. But DOD has not really internalized and fully embraced a drone delivery uh, capability. We're mostly in a world of experimentation. So from my view, nothing is quite ready to deploy to a war zone. So is this an important enough capability for the U.S. to make the required investment, or are there other ways to achieve the same goals? Well, I think we see this repeatedly in modern conflict. We saw it in Syria. Uh, we saw it in Ukraine over the last couple months. And each time an adversary besieges innocent civilians, we hear calls for the United States and its allies to come in and do something to break sieges. Uh, I do think this is a critical capability both for humanitarian aid, but also for battlefield resupply as we're facing more modern states like China with the ability to prevent United States airplanes from accessing their airspace. If we need to get supplies through, we need to invest in new capabilities, potentially larger numbers of smaller systems that can kind of sneak through those defenses uh, to move material in. So let's take a step back and tell us if you could the ways that drones have been used in Ukraine and what we've learned from those use cases. We are seeing a massive amount of experimentation with drones of all shapes and sizes in Ukraine. Uh, my specialty has been more on the small hobby side. That's where I've largely worked, where we've seen um, grassroots efforts to bring in off-the-shelf drones that are used for a lot of documentation of war crimes, for spotting artillery, uh, for intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance. Um, we have not seen much experimentation with drone delivery at the small scale, I think, because it's so difficult to do. Um, and we've also seen uh, some of these larger systems capable of uh, you know, real warfare and offensive engagement with Russian forces. So uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And even though there has not been great um, small drone capabilities through a lot of militaries today, uh, Ukrainians have been very ingenious in employing whatever they can find um, and seeing what works. You know, one thing that's needed to make this work is addressing where to launch the drone from. What are your thoughts on that? 
Well, this is one of the hardest parts about cargo delivery is if, if you're just flying a small drone to go take pictures, you can take that with you anywhere. You can launch from a field. You can stay very mobile, um, which is important because the Russians, for example, can, if they have a sense of where you're taking off from, they can bombard that whole area with artillery. If you want to deliver cargo to, say, break sieges, you probably have a fairly robust operation to launch cargo. You often have fixed infrastructure like runways or catapults. You have a big logistics tail that's very vulnerable to an enemy that's trying to stop you. So this is one of the hardest parts about building a scalable paradigm is do you start from in the country? Do you start from boats offshore? Do you start from a neighboring country where you risk military escalation? And these are some of the reasons that I think drone delivery technology is not quite ready is we haven't thought through the operating concept for how you do this at scale and make sure it's survivable. And this is where we need to put a lot of creative thought and energy into. So finally, Mark, what do you think the future holds for delivery by drone in combat? I do think it will be an increasingly important capability, but this is a long road. You see civilian companies have been trying for years to do it with, with marginal success. But my call is for government and DOD leaders to make the right investments, that we're going to keep facing situations where we need to move material through war zones into contested areas. And uh, to do that, it's going to take a lot of government investment over a long time. All right, Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Nice to talk to you. Appreciate it. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers 
as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.